They've got Sundquist set up at the opposite circle. Across to Gunnarsson, the shot, he scores! The Blues win it in overtime and have evened the series. He scores! Boom, boom, Gunnarsson! Bring out the Zamboni! The Blues win game two! What an overtime for the St. Louis Blues! It is very early on Friday, May 31st in Buffalo, New York. I am Steve Bennett, the host of the Sportscasters podcast, joining you tonight and today for episode 11 of season number nine. Amazing nine seasons in the books or eight seasons in the books as we work on uh, season number nine. I wanted to thank real quickly Mike Shope and Freddie Coleman for being on the podcast last time, episode 10. Uh, Freddie and Mike joined me to talk about sports radio in the age of the podcast. It was interesting because without knowing about it, they both had a story to tell about a time that they were both going for the same job at ESPN Radio, which I thought was pretty cool. You can find that, of course, on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. I noticed that Stitcher is actually sponsoring the NBA Finals, or, you know, one of the sponsors, and uh, made me think, wow, i got to bust, uh, bust Stitcher's balls or something because I haven't bothered them lately. I would always email them and say, hey, i got Joe Buck on. Can you send a tweet out? Can you push out something, an alert? Can you do anything for me? I'm a partner. And they would do it. They would do tweets, and they would say they did alerts. I don't really get alerts on my phone. I always shut that shit off. But um, they would say they'd do that, and uh, they sent me some T-shirts. So they will do stuff if you bother them. Anyone? one who has their own podcast listening. You just email them and get on their shit and they will do stuff. So I'm going to do that myself. You can also find uh, all episodes of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. Today's podcast, it's a good one. Uh, Mike Lombardi. Michael Lombardi is on the show. Michael Lombardi, of course, has three Super Bowl rings, one with the 49ers in the 80s and two with the Patriots. Recently, and of course, he uh, was with the Ringer for a few years after leaving the Patriots, and now he is doing a podcast with Adnan Verk and writing for the Athletic, and he's going to join us as soon as the intro is over. Also on the podcast today, Will Leach, an interview I recorded with him a couple Fridays ago. Uh, Will's a great guy; has been on this show a bunch of times, and unfortunately, we do get down the Trump politics rabbit hole a little bit for maybe ten or so minutes, and I regret that just because it's so pointless. Uh, but Will writes a ton about politics, so I did bring it up, and we talked about that for a few minutes, and we'll get to Will after the book club update, which I will also do, and then if you're still around for one last thing, it will be an ode to my brother Anthony, who had his 28th birthday last week, and next week is going into the St. Francis Athletics Hall of Fame, uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit at the end about my brother Anthony, but before we get to that, I want to talk about why it's been as long as it has been between episode 10 and 11, because I planned to just keep the podcast rolling. I'm just booking and interviewing and and rolling, and I was in this groove. And then uh, I have been trying to book Gene Wojciechowski 
on this podcast since 2012. He was on in 2012. He was promoting a book called The Last Great Game about the Duke and Kentucky game where Leitner hit the shot. And we had a great interview, and I thought when I hung up with him, he's going to be on all the time. He's going to be a regular. That was so great. And he sent me one rejection email after another. And listen, I say that with respect because I always talk about my biggest frustration in booking this show uh, being the fact that you email someone or text them or whatever, and you either get a yes response for them or you just never hear from them. Like Bob Klapsich or whatever his name was who wrote that Yankees book. He emailed me to say he'd be glad to do the interview and then has never responded to me again. Instead of just saying, look, I'm not going to do it or whatever happened, I have no idea. But that's just an example. So I say it with respect. I would actually love the emails after like by about 2015 because I would email once a year or so. 2015 or 2016. It was funny to see what he would come up with, why he was just too busy to do it. Uh, And he finally agreed, and I recorded a really great interview with him. We went about 40 minutes or so. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to edit this right away. And I go to edit it, and it sounds totally fucked. There's like these jump, just disaster, unusable junk. I I still don't know if I'm going to run it. I'm definitely not going to go back to him. I'm not going to go back to him and say, hey, man, you know, after all this time, I totally fucking blew it. But unlike when I screwed up the Adnan Verk interview, there wasn't really much I could do about this one because it sounded great in my headphones and it looked great on all my levels. And the problem was one of my wires basically just blew up on me and it was coming in and out. So it was recording, but like for a millisecond, it would cut out. So it's it's got this really... I'll probably run it at some point, put it as the last interview, and people can decide to listen to it or not. <sighs> so frustrating. But so then I'm like, well, I have to get this replaced. So I go to Guitar Center, and I tell him what's going on, and he hooks the wire up, and he's like, the wire's fine. And he talks me into buying this little box that was like 100 bucks. I'm like, are you sure this is what I need? Because I already have a board. And he's like, oh, no, this is what you need. And, you know, you get this new wire and you hook it up the way you hooked it up and don't overthink it and get your levers right and you're going to you're gonna love this. So I do everything. I hook it up and I start playing it or start trying to test. And it's just this awful feedback and just like this is not right. And I'm Googling like using this product with a board and I can't find anyone who's ever written about using this product with a mixing board. So I go back the next day to Guitar Center, and it's different people, and they're like, no, you would use this in place of a mixing board. And I'm like, I know. I was trying to tell your guy that, and he assured me. So I return that, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace the wire because I still think it's the wire. Even though your guy tested the wire and said the wire is good, I think that it's because he had it spread out flat. And the way my setup is, the wire actually hangs down. And sure enough, I switched the wire and it's working fine now. So uh, it it was down long enough to cost me one interview. And of course, it's one that I've been chasing since 2012. You know, it's interesting that these screw ups never happen with like a Perlman or a Passant or a Dater or one of my regulars who I could just say, hey, can we redo this? It's always got to be someone who said no to me for seven years or, you know, someone who I've never had before. So I got all that sorted out. 
the board's back up. I got two interviews recorded for you today. Lombardi and Leach. We're going to get to those. Blake J. Harris rescheduled with me through the difficulties. Really cool and flexible. We'll get Blake on. We'll talk about his book during the book club. Jim Florentine is going to be on sometime. We're going to supposed to record in the first week of June. So we got Jim Florentine coming up. And um, we have a new book, uh, Jason Turbo book. And Jason will be on. Uh, we also have a, a new book by Mark Cram Jr. I'll talk about that in the book club. Mark's going to be on. Uh, so there's still a lot coming on. And also, at some point this summer, I will be having surgery again. Uh, so we will have to shut down during my surgery and my recovery because, as I explained on the first show back, I did get a temporary ileostomy. And I have a bag right now, and that needs to be reversed. And when he goes in to do the reversal, he's also going to do a little bit more uh, reconstruction of the bowel. So I'm going to record as much as I can, get as many episodes out as I can, and then there'll probably be a break um, for me to recover from surgery. But with all that said, let's get into the show today. I don't love doing these long intros, but it felt like the right time to do it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We'll come back and have Michael Lombardi. Then I'll be back after that to talk about the book club. Then after that, we'll do Leech. And then one last thing will be an ode to my brother, Anthony. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come right back for the first time since 2012. Michael Lombardi. My first guest today is from New Jersey. He's a huge Sopranos fan, a three-time Super Bowl winner, and is making his first appearance on this podcast since 2012. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Michael Lombardi. Mr. Lombardi, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's Michael. Michael, thank you for joining us. It might be a record. I think we had you in 2012, and uh, then you got busy doing, uh, you know, working for the Patriots and the Browns, things like that. But you're back today in 2019. Thank you for doing it. Oh, I appreciate it. Anybody who loves The Sopranos like you do, I got no problem talking to them. I think I've been through it maybe six or seven times now. I just had to rewatch it again because, uh, who is it, Seppenwall came out with that Sopranos session book. So I kind of watched it yeah. with that. So, man, it's so good. It's just so good. It, it really gets better. It gets better and better. It ages really well. So it's one of those things. And you could use a line from it every day i mean when i texted you the other day i was watching an episode where i don't i forget the character from brooklyn who ends up getting assassinated sitting next to sylvia you know he walks up to, to phil leotari and said young and tan and 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 lonely i mean whatever it was a singing of the girl from the Panina. i mean it's just so great the writing is so fabulous and it. it's the, the the jokes that are hidden in there are unbelievably well written yeah, I was thinking about that um, episode where Christopher kills his first his first kill. It's the uh, like the son or the nephew of the garbage people, and he, he takes him to the pork shop, and he's like, "Oh, you played my cousin in football," and he's like, "Isn't that a different kind of Polak?" And they're just the things Christopher's saying is so funny, and then he shoots him in the back of the head. And what did they dig that guy yeah. up like three different times in the show too? Yeah, they moved him all over. Yeah, the they place. moved him all over the you place. Know. 
Yeah, so good. So I just love it, and um, I always argue it's the best. Another show I love is Deadwood. Did you watch Deadwood at all? Because they got a movie comes out tomorrow. I did not. No, I did not watch Deadwood. I didn't get into Deadwood, and I and I didn't get into Breaking Bad. Although I love Brian Cranston. I mean, I love. I could watch Brian Cranston play LBJ uh, a thousand times. He plays LBJ as good as anybody I've ever seen. I'm a huge, huge fan books from Robert Caro so I feel like I've kind of I, I know it and it's just well done so uh, no I've never done Breaking Bad I saw Cranston do Network on Broadway and I thought it was he was doing J he was doing LBJ as in Network it was really good what did you think of Springsteen on Broadway I'm sure you went right oh of course yeah I mean I thought it was incredibly emotional I cried I laughed I uh I just had memories of going through it, and it was just powerful. It was really powerful. I thought it was a, a kind of a, a tribute to his dad, a, a, an apology to his dad, a cleansing for his dad. And I took it that way, and I think the, each song had different meaning for me, and it's just it's really a powerful one. I, I cry. I've watched it. I went twice, watched it. I still watch it on Netflix. I think it's incredible. I went to this show. I don't know if you remember this. I think it was 2011, somewhere around there. There got there, this was towards the end of the tour, and this rumor came up that it might be the last tour, and the last show was in Buffalo, and this rumor picked up all this steam. So I remember all these kind of famous people came in to see the show. I remember Baba Bowie was here. Um, <laughs> he's famous to me. He's not a big Stern guy. I'm trying to think who else came in. Obviously, it didn't turn out to be the last show, but. I remember just like walking into the arena that night thinking, wow, this would be so cool if I'm a part of this Springsteen history. It would be really cool. And I remember I really liked that show because they played Lonesome Day that night, which is one of my favorite uh, Springsteen, kind of underrated yeah. Springsteen I mean, songs. you know, it's, it, it's funny. I mean, I still buy – yesterday I bought two of them. I still buy Springsteen Live. Uh, you know, when you go to Springsteen Live, you can buy albums. I bought one from – 81, which I'm typically not a fan because there's too many great songs that are left out when you just go back to 1981 or 91 or any of those years. But I bought a show from uh, from Leeds, uh, England, and then I bought another show from uh, Albany, New York, which is just unbelievable. And it's all predicated on songs that he goes kind of off the off the beaten path with a little bit. Lonesome Day is an incredible song. And yeah, I mean it's just really it's remarkable. I when I saw him in in Italy, when I saw him in uh, in Florence, it was really a highlight. It was truly a highlight to be there and experience it with foreigners and have the same passion for his words that you know. And these people, these Italians, have no idea where Highway Nine is, but yet they're they're singing like they know it. Right. I'm a I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy. I've been to 83 Pearl Jam shows, so I'm cut, not quite to where you are with Springsteen, but I got. I had some time to catch up, hopefully. Uh, but um, I know how hard this question is, but I'll still throw it out. Do you have a, a favorite? Like, I know people ask me this probably all the time. Is there a show that sticks out as kind of your number one? Have you ever tried to, like, rank them at all or get a top ten together or anything like that? I think anytime he plays in Milan, San Siro Stadium, I, although I've never seen him there, uh, I think those are the incredible shows. I think my favorite show right now is from 2013 – when he played in Rome and he had the Rome uh, Philharmonic Orchestra behind him and he played New York Serenade. You can Google it. It's on uh, YouTube and the, and the Italian violinists, the women that are there, they're just unbelievable. And they play New York Serenade and it's just an incredible, incredible, um, unbelievable. 
I love New York Serenade. That's a great one. I uh, the that orchestra gimmick is hard to pull off, but when someone pulls it off, it really is great. You know, but um, it's it's amazing how they did it. I don't even know. I mean, there are, there's like four Italian women and and like two Italian guys that are playing New York Serenade, and it was funny because he went and got the the he got the uh, it wasn't on the set list. He took it from a fan. It was it was one of those you know where he takes it and it's unbelievable. Yeah, his his ability, his versatility to just play anything at any moment is incredible. Like I think I heard uh, little Steven actually talking about how like or no, you know who it was? It was um, uh, Tom Morella from Audio Slave who played with the band for a few years and Rage Against the Machine was saying like you just you're just up there and you have to be ready for literally anything because he will just walk over and say we're playing. Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding, and you just have to be ready to play it like at, at a blink. You know what I mean? So it's just like there it's incredible. It must be really difficult to be in the East Street band. It's amazing. It is. Um listen, I've been a, a Saints fan since nineteen eighty seven and um I think two days ago we were a hundred days away from the start of the season, and I have to admit, I'm still I'm still not ready. I'm just not I walked away from the T V after the NFC Championship game, and I said, I could never walk away from Drew Brees, and as long as he's a saint, I know I'll be watching these games. But I don't know how much energy I have left. The way the last two seasons ended, I just don't know what I... I we won the Super Bowl in 2000, January 2010, February 2010, February 7, 2010. Since then, we've lost three playoff games with names. And I don't know if they've named last year's, but if they name last year's, that'll be four. I mean, they don't name a lot of playoff games. Usually if you lose a game with a name, that means it was a really tough loss. I just Can you talk me off the ledge at all? Well, I think, look, that's part of, you know, the, the as Hyman Roth said in the, in the Godfather, this is part of the business we've chosen. You know, this is, you know, you've got to get over it. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can't sit there and wait or wager and, You've got to find a way that you come back. I mean, I think, you know, look, the greatest comebacks are always some obstacle you've had to overcome. And look, I think people are wrong in the sense that, you know, yes, the play did effectively affect the outcome, but there was five other plays in that game. If the Saints make them, they can win the game. And starting with the two times, they they can't convert on third down in the red zone. So, look, the, the 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 greatness of any organization, as Al Davis would say, is in their resiliency, and you've got to be resilient as a fan, as a member of the organization. You just can't give in to it, and I think it would be really really uh, important uh, to understand that because if you want to be a fan, that's one thing. If you want to be all in, that's another thing. Well, I mean, I've been all in since 1987. I haven't missed a game since 1996, so it doesn't get much more all in than me, but. I'm broken. Like I went to my what before the Eagles game, a division round last year. I said, "Listen, here's the good news. It can't end any worse than it did last year. No matter what happens, it can't be worse than last year." And somehow it was worse. So I'm a broken fan, but look at I know that you'll bounce back. I know you'll bounce back once you see the uniforms. Yep. Once you see the uniforms. Once you see. You know, look, they've got a tough opening schedule. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's a tough, tough road. I mean, and they're going and they're going to have to. I, I wrote a column for the Athletic the other day that I thought that perhaps they'll be a better team, but they won't have a better record because they're going to have to overcome a lot of things. I mean, last year the over the, the, losing the Tampa on the opening game was tough, but I think they'll overcome those things. But the reality of it is, is 
there's a lot of games that they're going to have to play there, and it's going to make them better come November, December. Yeah, I don't get – like last year going into the season, there was a six-game stretch. It was like at Minnesota in a night game. The Eagles were coming to town. I mean, the Ram. it was a ridiculous stretch. And I'm like, well, if we can go 3-3, three and three, we won 6-0 and oh in those games. Because, you know, the yeah, Eagles I mean, didn't Baltimore, have their – You beat Baltimore up there, yep. which was a hard thing to do. I mean, that's a hard game to win up there in Baltimore. And yet you did that. And so, look, I, I think the one thing about – even though Sean has always been an offensive-minded coach, the team does have toughness. And I think that that shows its face. And I think the more scars – I mean, look at the Patriots. I mean, the Patriots did not have a very good November, December, which they typically do have. But they were able to overcome it. And, you know, they got, they've got they improved. I mean, by the time they played the Chargers in the, in the postseason, that was the best they were playing all year. Right. Yeah, I remember thinking, like, this isn't a great Patriots team this year. Like, I just remember – thinking that like a large portion of the year and then sure enough when it came time to be ready they were ready and they they won yeah, it and, all and again I think if they would have got I think Steve if they would have gotten to the if the Saints would have that that I think that call benefited the Patriots tremendously because mm-hmm. I think that would have been a tougher matchup for them because Sean you know understands how to attack the Patriots I think he has a real good feel for it and I think the fact that they would have been able to mix it a little bit more that and balanced it and have more of a drop back passing game. But what people don't realize about the Rams is, and of course you can't say this because every expert on Twitter, every expert who thinks they know football will, will just say the Rams have very little pro, uh, a very small drop back pass game, very small. And once you force them into that drop back pass game, then all hell breaks loose and the wheels come off. Yeah. And I think you can rattle golf too. Like I, I think that's the one thing that they, that really bugged me about that game. I haven't watched it back. I'll never watch it again. But one thing that bothered me about that game is like, I wanted more from Camp Jordan in that game. Like I wanted golf. I wanted it to be harder on him. Like the crowd was great. Superdome was great. And they, especially early, they got him into some mistakes. And I think the crowd was a part of that. But man, I wish the defensive line could have been better. Maybe that's where Sheldon Rankin's not being there. Maybe really hurt. Um, in that game, maybe hurt us quite a bit. I think, but yeah, I think I think the uh, I think that the game, I think the lesson to learn from the Ram game was the ability of the Patriots to rush golf in a certain way and get into the paint, which I said all year was a problem for golf. And there's only really one team that did it, and that was the Patriots. You've got to get in the paint on golf. Golf doesn't like any pressure from the inside. Right. Golf can deal with pressure coming off edges, but even the Super Bowl when he threw the ball for the interception. When he sees a rusher coming from depth, I mean, he never got his feet set. He looked like Fred Flintstone trying to start the car, and he and he underthrew the ball. And uh, you know, I think that that was really problematic. And I think that's a reflection of his inability to really handle and stay in there and, and drive the ball. Very similar to Breeze, too. I mean, if there's one way to beat him, it's pressure in his face, get in the middle, and and and. and it's the same thing with Brady. I mean, yeah. look, that, that no quarterback likes anybody in the paint. Although we don't talk about the paint enough. You know, we don't talk about the pain enough, and we don't talk about getting into the pain enough. But, but you know, that's the one common denominator that quarterbacks hate is people in their face. I know this is really broad, but let me ask you this. When you look ahead the, the, the next 100 days as we get ready for opening day, what are the what are some things you're really going to be closely monitoring? Like I know on your podcast yesterday you were talking about Gruden and the Raiders and kind of the circus there. Maybe we'll get to see that circus on Hard Knocks. I'm not sure if they'll be the team or not. But what are you, as the, as we transition from spring to summer and training camps open, what are the things you're most interested to kind of track? 
you know, the, 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 what's real and what's not real is the most important thing to track. I mean, there's a lot of guys that can make what we used to call at Oakland the all-Alameda team, which means they were great at these mini camps, but couldn't do anything once the pads came on. I think you have to really stop the, the, the you have to understand what's, what's real and what's not. And, you know, these conversations about this guy's having a great mini camp, you can't let that affect your thinking because those great mini camps don't necessarily always translate into great training camps or great seasons. And you can make a list of guys that have looked good in the spring, but can't turn it off. And when the competition comes in. So I think that that's really one of the things I try not to buy into, Hey, this guy's having a great camp or Dwayne Haskins could start because he's really playing well in camp. I'm not buying any of it. Right. Like Ronald Jones is a guy with a lot of buzz the last few days, right? Like this guy. Yeah, I mean, there's nobody tackling them. Right. Nobody's tackling them. Nobody's hitting them. There's no, you know, you, you, you're not allowed to touch it. So I, I, I'm not buying it. Right. If he misses a blitz, they're not taking uh, Jameis Winston's head off just yet. So, um, yeah, no. You know, I, <laughs> like I said, I'm a broken fan, but I just talking to you right now, like, I'm getting excited. Like, I can feel the juices flowing a little bit. You know what I mean? So, uh, the sportscasters are here with Michael Lombardi. We're talking to him. The NFL is about 100 days away, so I wanted to do something on it. He's at M. Lombardi NFL on Twitter, uh, and he has a great new podcast called The GM Shuffle with Adnan Verk, who was on a few episodes ago. What do you like What do you like the most about working with Adnan so far? Oh, I think, you know, with no script, with no uh, uh, any rehearsal, we can just start talking, and it's comfortable. I think we have a really unique chemistry that, typically doesn't happen right away but it did and his love of movies and his pop culture references and his ability to recite lines and 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 scenes from movies is just remarkable so it's been seamless for me i really enjoy working with him i love tate frazier i thought tate was outstanding you know tate just used to produce bill simmons's show and then he moved into this role and he did an incredible job but i think that you know with adnan it's just different it's it's been very comfortable and I think as we build the show, and I mean, look, we're really building the show to get into the season. You know, there's we have 32 minutes, 33 minutes of a show now once a week. But once we get in the season, we do two shows. We'll get this thing humming, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I think it'll be real football information. I think it'll be information for the gambler. I think it'll be information for the fans. And I think it'll be real football. It'll be honest football. It won't be just that rhetoric you hear on Sunday morning about, well, they need to run the ball better. Right. I don't mean this as a knock on Tate Frazier at all in any way, but when you look back on your time at Ringer, do you wish you would have done more with, with Bill Simmons? Because when I think of Michael Lombardi and podcasts, I think of so many great shows that you did with Bill, whether it was back when he was at ESPN or in the early days of Ringer. It's like you two guys, like you say what you're, what you're building with Adnan, and I'm sure you guys will get there. But the, the chemistry that you and Bill had, I mean, that was really, I don't know, I don't want to sound corny and say special or anything, but it was very good for a podcast. When you look back, do you... it was awesome. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was great. I mean, we you know we could go back and forth, and it was a lot of fun. And you know, it just I think certain things change. Nothing lasts forever, and I think it was good for me to be there for two years. But I, I think it was time for me to go on my own and, and start my do my own thing and feel comfortable in my own skin. And I appreciate everything that Bill's done for me in my career. But I think it was time for me to and I wanted to write. I wanted to write. And I wanted to be able to have more freedom to do what I wanted to do. And I think that that's really been what's happened. Well, you're at The Athletic, and you're right in there. And like you said, you broke my heart a little bit 
with your last column picking the under on the Saints there. But um, what do you hope to do with the column in concert with the podcast as the season gets going? Are you really excited about, like you said, you were looking forward to doing writing more. Uh, what is it you think with that? Yeah, because that... I think writing helps you prepare. Look, any you know, I'm a writer by trade. I mean, I used to be a football guy, but but now I consider myself a writer. And when you're a writer, you have to write. I write every day, and and so you try to write every day, and and you write the podcast. And so the things that you write that maybe don't always go into a column, you can you can put it through. It's the same thing when I used to work for NFL Network. I mean, I would write for NFL.com. And the writing when I wrote for NFL.com was like a research project to allow me to do what I had to do when I was on the air. And so it's just all hand and it works together. And I think it's really kind of fun. Do you ever see yourself working for a team again? Uh, no, I don't. I really I wanted to have a second career. One of the reasons I, I decided to, to leave the Patriots is because I wanted to be able to have – a, a second career to I wanted to write. I see myself more as a writer now than I do as a football executive. I love leadership. I mean, my book is so much about leadership and culture. I love those two areas. I like being able to consult and help people. And so for me, it was just, I want to have a second career. I met George Raveling three years ago when he talked about the best years of his life was when he was from 60 to 81. And I, I want to enjoy those years. The book is, good, is uh, called Gridiron Genius, by the way, and you can get it on um, in the Apple Bookstore or for um, eBooks on Amazon, or of course you can get it as a regular book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. I just want to get a plug out on that real quick since you mentioned it. Um, when you left to work for the teams, um, the Browns and the Patriots, and you came back and you started getting into writing and podcasting again, what did you notice has changed? Like, how do you think? Um, the sports media is different now than it was before, and is it for the better or for the worse? Do you think? How are we evolving? I think there's there's more of an appetite. I think fans want to have the great have a great curiosity to learn more about the game. I think football has always been a game that America loves the best, that knows the least about, and I think there's a huge appetite to learn about it. And I think that that we have to provide that. I think the media has to change the direction. Of where we go. I wrote this column yesterday about the over and the unders. I mean, we talk Bitcoin with no problem, and even that's a gamble. But, you know, to talk about the Patriots being over their win total, it's all the way that's taboo. We're not allowed to do that. You know, and, and really the reality of it is, is because sports gambling is legal in so many states, that I see myself as an analyst. I don't bet. I really don't bet. I mean, you can remember going back to the Bill Simmons podcast. He would start talking about gambling, and I would be like, no, nah, I don't really, under, you know, I don't yep. do it. But I know teams. I know teams. And if you ask me a question and you shape it in a way, like Jonathan Von Tobel used to do on Vegas Stats and Information Network, which is what I'll be doing this fall again, you know, we can, I can help you decide on what you want to do in terms of your investment. To me, if you're smart and you follow the Warren Buffett profile on what do you need to do in investment, then I think you can make a lot of money. You can make some money in sports betting. But if you bet with your heart and if you bet with your – if you bet with your – fan heart then it's not going to work out do you think that the sports betting becoming legal in a, in a broader sense is going to be one of the biggest changes to the game the way we talk about the game or do you think that that's a little bit overrated look at in, in a quote-unquote illegal sense people have been betting on this in infinitum right so time, i think we're in the information business and i think if you don't provide solid information you know then you're not going to be able to attract more viewers and advertisers i think you've got to provide 
and you got to do it in an entertaining way. I'm not saying you need to do it in a, you know, we need to teach football one on one, but you got to do it in an entertaining way. And I think there's people on Sunday morning looking for help, and they want to know where should they, whether it's five dollars or five thousand dollars. They're looking to find a way for you to help them place their bet. The sports guys are here with Michael Lombardi, first time since 2012. Really excited. A few more, and I'll let you go, Michael. I know you got other things to do today. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple real quick ones about on the field. I wonder about Patrick Mahomes. If you're the Raiders or the Chargers or one of the AFC West teams or someone in the AFC and you're doing your due diligence this summer on Mahomes, is there something on the tape there you can find to slow this guy down? Or um, are we talking about you know an, another three, four, five-time MVP who's just going to tear this league up? Or, or do you worry about a little regression this year? Well, I think you're going to have to rush them the right way. I don't think you can just let them get out of the pocket and run around and create these loose plays on their own. I think what New England did with them is important. I think you've got to be able to take away his first read, but you've got to keep them in the pocket. The first thing you've got to do is you can't let him go. Like like Baltimore played him really well, but he got out of the pocket, and the next thing you know, all hell broke loose, and he makes this unbelievable fourth and 16 throw across right. his body to Tyreek Hill, who should never even have been in the area, but, he, but he's like the roadrunner, beep, beep, and he goes over and makes a great catch, and he's, you know, they get the first down. So I think you got to – and then you got to play really good in the red zone against them. I think you got to be able to – you know, he's going to move the ball on. You're not going to stop him, but you got to play good in the red zone. It really – to stop great quarterbacks, we have this completely wrong. To stop a great quarterback is never about what coverage you're doing or what you're – it's all about what you're doing with the rush. And if you want to run up the field and go past Patrick Mahomes and give him an escape, then you're going to lose. If you rush him down the middle and you power back – if you power back Eric Fisher and you inside out Mitchell Schwartz and you, you take advantage of the poor inside lineman of the Chiefs and you get in the paint there – and you really do a good job of rushing four and collapsing the pocket, you're going to have a chance to keep the game somewhere between 20 to 24 points. And with the Chiefs' defense not being great, you got a chance to win it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong or kind of help me formulate this point a little bit, but that's why the Saints paid so much for Marcus Davenport last year in the draft, right? Because the way the game has evolved, it's about the quarterback and the guy rushing the quarterback, right? That's It's all what the game's about. I mean, yeah. look, it's just as simple as this. When you were a kid playing in your backyard, when you had to, when you when you guys decided it was three Mississippi, nobody got open. When you made it five Mississippi, people got open. It's the same thing in pro football. Right. When it's three Mississippi, Patrick Mahomes isn't great. When it's five Mississippi, Patrick Mahomes is great. Is, and that's the that's football. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I I cringed a little bit when I saw the trade initially, but then you think about it, and it's like, man defense is uh, as great as Marcus Lattimore is. He can't hold up for, like you said, much more than three Mississippi, right? Um, no, I mean, no no corner can. I mean, that's the biggest misconception. You know, you need corners. I'm not saying you don't need corners, but you need you need guys who can impact the court. But you also need coaches that understand how to rush. Right. You don't need coaches that will just run up the field. Hopefully Dennis Allen is that guy. Uh, two more, I'll let you go. Um, one more about Mahomes, and I'll do one more. Is Mahomes a little bit loose with the ball? Is that what I, what I mean? Is is that something you try to coach out of him, or is it something where you say, you know what, we got to let Patrick be Patrick, and if that means a fumble or an interception here or there, that's fine. Like I think about that Rams game last year, and he was brilliant in the game, but he also turned it over like five times, and that's maybe why they lost the game. I'm making too much of that, yeah. and, and how do you approach that? As I know, I mean, look, he's a young player. You're always going to have ways to coach and correct him, so I don't think you make it too much. I think you got to got to work on it, and I mean, he's got to work on it. I think it's something that Andy, being a really good coach, will work on. Last thing, 
you have won Super Bowls, three of them. You have done podcasts with Bill Simmons. You're doing one with Adnan. You've written for The Athletic. You've had a great career. You've written a great book called Gridiron Genius. Uh, what else is on the bucket list in football to do? What else do you want to accomplish before you're all said and done? When the legacy of Mike Lombardi is written, Sopranos fan, Springsteen fan, three-time Super Bowl champion, podcaster, writer, what else do we got to squeeze in there? I want to be able to write at least five books. I want to be to be thought of as, as a writer. I want to have a great second career, and I want to be able to take the information that I've learned uh, in my 30-plus years in, in the front office and try to give it to other people and help them be successful. I think that would make it uh, me really happy. Mentoring would probably be the best thing that I could do for my life right now. Are you working on a second book already? Not yet. I haven't yet. come up with the idea. I'm trying to get the paperback edition out on the first book. So I'm hoping this summer I'll have an idea. It'll come to me on one of these walks along Ocean City's boardwalk. All right, let me set up these plugs real quick. Michael Lombardi, uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at M Lombardi NFL there. And you'll probably get a lot of the information you need there. But he also has uh, the GM Shuffle podcast with Adnan Verk, who was on a few weeks ago. You can go back and check that episode out for more information about that as well. And he writes for The Athletic. You can subscribe to The Athletic to read his columns, but skip the part where he says the Saints are going to be under because we all make mistakes. Um, and then <laughs> and then also you can uh, – did I miss anything? Anything else you want to plug? I think I got him. No, you got it. I'm good. I pre- and, and the Vegas Stats and Information Network this fall. That's about it. Awesome. Well, hopefully we don't wait seven years till the next time, but even if we do, I appreciate you uh, making a few Thanks, minutes dude. for this. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. I'm a little too tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes. Points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy. I want to thank Michael Lombardi for being on the podcast today. Appreciate him returning to this circus that Jeff Passman referred to as it's like being on Wayne's World. So thanks to Michael for putting himself through that. Uh, I want to update the book club because we got a few different things going on. First of all, I was supposed to interview uh, Blake J. Harris about the history of the future, his book about virtual reality. And unfortunately, it was during the period where the podcast room was down because of the technical difficulties. And I was having some difficulties with my nurse and them coming. So that got pushed back. But he's been really great about rescheduling. And we will get this interview done. Uh, Blake's a great guy. He's been really flexible with me. So I'd really love for you to check out his book. It's called The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality. And I'm looking forward to having Blake on to talk about that. Uh, A really good book. An interesting business book. Interesting to hear about Facebook and the way they treat this guy. They buy his company from him for like $3 billion and end up firing the guy. Uh, But really, uh, just a really great book, and I can't wait to have Blake now, when we're done with that, the desk is clear, so to speak, and we'll be starting on two new books, one baseball, one boxing. Uh, the first one I think I mentioned last episode 
It's called They Bleed Blue. Fernando Mania, Strike Season Mayhem, and the Weirdest Championship Baseball Has Ever Seen. The 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers by Jason Turbo. I am interviewing him on June 10th. Uh, so I have to get this book finished by then. Uh, it came out. It comes out on the 4th, uh, which is in a few days. Uh, so it might already be in bookstores. You know, books is this weird thing where they just kind of put them out on the shelf, I think, when they when they come in. Uh, but I have a copy here uh, that I'm reading through so that I can be ready when the time has come on the 10th to talk to Jason. And I'm really looking forward to it. It's a good book. Like, I think I might have said this, but it kind of reminds me of a Jeff Perlman book. But it's not by Perlman. It's by uh, Jason Turbo, who also wrote a book about the like the unwritten rules of baseball, uh, which I heard is really cool. And that's actually what he goes by on Twitter is the name of that book, which I'm trying to find it. And of course, because cause I want to find it, I can't. Uh, but we will have Jason on in a few episodes. Also, Mark Cram Jr., I don't know, maybe long-time listeners, if there is such a thing, of this show will remember this. Way back when we started the book club, uh, we had a book called Like Any Normal Day, A Story of Devotion uh, by Mark Cram Jr., a really touching, beautiful story. I know we gave a few copies out, and uh, it, it actually won, like, a, it was around 2013, it won an award from ESPN for literary sports writing, just a really beautiful a story about tragedy and sports and family. Well, Mark has a new book coming out called Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. And they sent me a copy of it. It actually comes out as well on Tuesday, June 4th. So a big day for books in the book club on Tuesday. And uh, I reached out to the publisher who sent it to me. And I said, I'd love to talk to Mark about this. He was on. I explained that he had been on and featured a book. Uh, so hopefully we'll get something on the calendar with Mark. And if we don't, I figured, well, at least I can mention it one time for Mark because he was good to us back in 2013 when his other book was out. So Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier is the name of that book. It's out this week. Also, They Bleed Blue about the 1981 Los Angeles Dodgers. And don't forget our boy Blake J. Harris and his book, The History of the Future. All right, that's it for the book club this week. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with our friend Will Leach. All right, our next guest was once the main man at Deadspin, and now he's got so many jobs I couldn't even name them all in the time it takes for the Illinois fight song to finish. Let's just talk to him about it. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our friend, Will Leach. What's going on, Will? How are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me, sir. Happy you... to be back. It's been a while. It's been a minute, yeah. as is the local, as is the cool lingo these days. I prefer to just use an actual specific amount of time. It's been a long time. You've been, uh, you have many jobs, that's why. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm generally of the idea. I know that uh, we live in a scary uh employment climate for journalists and writers uh, a wintry economic climate if you will but uh i uh so my feeling is if i just take as many as many jobs as i can they can't fire me from all of them yeah because i was looking i was looking at the um on, on the the letter there you know tinyletter.com yeah it's tinyletter.com slash william f leach right so i was on there today and so this is the latest episode this is what we got on here 
Okay, first of all, you wrote an, a long intro. Then there's always do every week seven articles. Mm-hmm. The Will Eat Show, or yeah, the Will Show, your show. Uh, three mm-hmm. podcasts, um, a Democratic presidential ranking. Uh, and William Weld, and William Weld, William Weld is not excluded. It is all, it is all candidates, including William Weld, the one guy running the Republican primary. Oh, okay. Where does he rank? I don't see him. Low. <laughs> oh, there he is, 19. 19 out of 22. Okay, and then uh, a, a request for letters, because apparently you want to write more. Um, mm-hmm. A disastrous picture of uh, poor Matthew Sweat, or Sweet. How did, it's Sweet, right? Sweet. It's very sweet, yeah. Yeah. And I then mean, disastrous or just the ravages of time that come for us all. And then this is a picture of your son with the Yale football shirt. We got to get him a Yale hockey shirt. Yeah, yeah, he is a his grandfather and his aunt went to Yale, and uh, he really wants to play basketball for Yale. He went to they played Georgia Tech. He went with his mother a couple of years ago. He's seven, and he uh, he is very excited about playing basketball for Yale. Um, huh. I uh, it's very strange to look at your son and uh, be like, yeah, uh, uh, be like, yeah, that's great, man. Uh, to look at him when he's seven years old and think, well, you've got a better chance to actually just go to Yale. <laughs> like, drop the basketball bar. Like, the idea the idea that, like, going to Yale is the least optimistic part. <laughs> like, no, the basketball thing is not what's happening, man. Now, we can find you. If, you, if basketball is really important to you, there are plenty of junior colleges around here where you could probably, uh, uh, if you have the genes of your father, will have the opportunity <laughs> to... Uh, to clean the uniforms and and get water for everyone but uh, bless his heart he's seven he doesn't know the leech limitations yet my brother went to yale to play played hockey at yale um never would have got in if it wasn't for hockey um but uh yeah you'll have to take him to the whale show maybe maybe i can get some my brother can send him something if he yeah we also we we, uh his his aunt his aunt is a is a professor there and uh, we are yeah, so we 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 get out there whenever we can. I've not been to a Yale basketball. I've been to I've been to the Yale Bowl. I've been to the Yale Bowl before he was born, but I've, I've never actually been to a Yale basketball game. As a, as a someone who holds the very controversial position in the South that uh, college basketball is probably something I like a little more than college football, even though I like them both. Uh, I actually want to see a college basketball game. I think that would be fun. Bad news that the uh, soccer coach was exposed. Could have had that loophole. Yeah. You know, you could have had that yeah, loophole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. On on my show, I had uh, Sean Astin, uh, Rudy, the yeah. the Goonies, yeah. of course, and that. Uh, so and all the all of these things he's done, and he was on the show, and his daughter actually goes to Harvard. Oh no, so I, that's too bad. So I asked him. I had to ask him. I yeah. had to ask him. I said, "So like, she's you're not like pretending she's like a rower, right?" <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was, and it was a good reminder that celebrities are not like you and I. And Sean Astin's a pretty down to earth celebrity, but he actually wasn't sure what I was talking about. <laughs> I was like, "Oh man, this is like a huge story." He just totally <laughs> missed it. I think he just he was I sure he'd been doing press and listen wow. I get it when I'm really in the middle, I'm in the <laughs> middle of book revisions right now I'm missing all kinds of stories right now when you're really in the middle of something you don't get a chance to catch everything but certainly I would have thought that would have come up at some point yes wow that's hilarious my brother was telling me that uh, Keith Elaine who's the hockey coach there he's like he's he played he's a hockey coach now he played goalie there when he you know like he's a yell blue and white or whatever their colors are through and through loves everything about Yale. He's like, there's one guy he didn't like, and it was that soccer coach. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He's like, he would always tell us to stay away from him. And uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, so Keith Elaine, he... he... Good to know. 
Listen, I I, uh, I generally feel like that story got a little overcovered. That said, uh, anytime they're, that they're really wealthy wealthy people can be embarrassed in the public square, I feel like we have to take out the opportunity. So I'm wondering, like, I always thought that Jeff Perlman was the most liberal guest far and away. I was reading some of your stuff today. I'm wondering if you maybe are in contention with him. I don't know. Uh, I certainly don't know if I'm as avid. Uh, I don't tweet as much about it. As definitely, yeah, you're not, no. <laughs> it's I, definitely true. I was um, on I the Quaz. Hold on, let me tell you yeah, this quick yeah. story. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah please, please. I please. was on the Quaz, his interview show that he does on mm-hmm. there. He tweeted yeah, yeah. W- one time the whole week about it. And I was I was like, I'm going to count and see how many political tweets he had in that same week. I bailed out at like 48. Oh, yeah. I was only like three hours in. It was like 48. I'm like, forget it. It's not that important. He tweets more about politics. I'm, I'm going to tell him next time I see him. I'm like, you got to promote your shit a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. I will confess, I have never, uh, uh, I've really never, like a lot of people, I never really considered myself, uh, I mean, I had certainly had my beliefs, uh, but uh, I never really felt compelled, and still really don't a little bit, com- too compelled to, uh, to, to be too political about it. I will confess, in this day and age, um, I think it's become, in, as I wrote for New York Magazine this week, right. uh, pretending that you can separate politics from anything particularly in this specific age is pretty impossible i have voted for republicans in my life i have some of my closest friends are republicans i do not think that if you are a republican you are a jerk i do however think donald trump is a horrible person and i would literally pick a name from a phone book before he would be i would make him president of the united states so uh and i think we're seeing the ramifications of that so i've never it's weird i i it's a little worrisome for me to hear you say that because i really don't consider myself that political of a person. However, I do think that the current situation transcends traditional politics and is more of the national emergency idea. Uh, so uh, so I, I don't think of myself as a extremely left-wing person. I will confess, uh, if you were to ask me to rank uh, the candidates uh, who are currently in the primary, my uh, personal beliefs tends to be, uh, I tend to find myself supporting the ones that are not as far left as some of the others. So like a uh, Biden. I will... Uh, a Biden, uh, a Harris, uh, an O'Rourke, okay. uh, Klobuchar, uh, uh, and I listen. I like Warren. I don't agree with all of her politics on everything, but I find her a sincere person uh, who is really trying to do some do, do right, even if I don't necessarily agree with everything. Uh, but to be honest, uh, there, as I said before, I would take a name out of the phone book. Uh, before I would have the person that's currently in the White House. So I try to keep my eyes on the prize here. While I might not necessarily agree with every single one of the Democratic candidates or William Weld, to bring back William Weld. Right, 19th. Uh, I, might, I might not agree with uh, – with, uh, uh, oh, I don't agree with any of them on everything because they're totally different people than right, me. that's impossible. Weird. Right, yeah. It would be weird to just yeah. totally agree with someone. But uh, I would take any of them in a half a second uh, over the current situation. I, uh, I'm definitely – a relatively moderate Republican because I'm not religious. I don't. I'm not into guns. You know, so some of the more extreme things, I, you know, they lose me on. Socially, I'm pretty moderate. Um, but and in 2000 and like when the 2016 cycle started, I remember there was like 17 or 16 Republicans on the stage at the first debate. I would have ranked Trump dead last. You know what I mean? Like dead last of all those. Your instinct was good there. Yeah, of all those guys, like he the least attractive because first of all i thought it was fake i mean my whole life i thought he was a democrat he thought it was fake yeah i he, think he thought it was fake. yeah totally so i mean but in in retrospect as awful as he is as a person his um 
the the governing of the country during his time has been relatively conservative. I don't know that I'm that again, I don't agree with everything and I'm talking policy here. Not I mean everything about him is awful. The way he tweets, the way he talks, he's awful. But I think that he doesn't do that much besides tweet and talk. And I think that behind him, in terms of getting the Supreme Court, two justices already, right? I mean, if those yeah. those were for Hillary, I think I I would feel a lot different about it. So I don't know. It's tough. The, the system puts you in a strange position. Uh, yeah, I suppose, though, I would argue uh, I, I think that I think that is certainly the uh, logic that a lot of uh, lifelong conservatives have used to justify what's currently happening to themselves, the idea that you're getting the Supreme Court justices, that uh, while he is a lot of noise and a lot of chaos, uh, in the background you're getting the judges that you want. And, and that's fine, and I, I understand that. Uh, on, uh, and so, and on one hand, I, I mean, I get it. Like, I disagree with some of those things, but whatever. If that's, if that, uh, that's clearly the, the, the math that everybody used to kind of talk themselves into it, uh, I would argue that uh, even if you think those things are good, I don't, but even if you do th- think those things are good, um, the cost of uh, not just the tweets, uh, but the lack of trust that any of uh, uh, our allies have in us anymore, the idea that there are literally thousands of government positions that have not been filled. Uh, the idea that uh, uh, every single uh, uh, non-white group in this country feels under attack, and now, frankly, every non-male group in this country feels under attack. Uh, sure, not necessarily all the policies have been enacted uh, as much as he might have liked, and he does do a lot of noise. Uh, but I think it's pretty argue. I'll put it this way. I was uh, 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 very worried, obviously, like a lot of people were, uh, when he was um, – uh, elected, I think that c- certain parts haven't been as bad as what I feared. I honestly thought the stock market would collapse. <laughs> like I honestly did. I thought that there would just be no longer any faith in the American system of government. Right, and that's um, been the opposite. To be fair, yeah. Uh, well, opposite is I would not say the opposite. I Pretty would say. close to the opposite. I mean, yeah, what's unemployment at right now? All time low. Yeah, right? I understand. Uh, yeah, yes. On one hand, and I know the stock market is high, and there's a lot of money. For people that have money in the stock market, I have money in the stock market, and my stock has gone up. So good for me. Most people don't have a lot of money in the stock market, and uh, and therefore are not actually benefiting uh, from this. So that said, I, I went through the stock. The stock market has been better than I thought it was going to be, uh, and I did fear I did fear that we would be in a war already. And so those two things have not. We're been, not even close uh, to a war. I mean, there's no there's no indication there's going to be a war. There's no indication I mean, of that. that. I mean, have you paid attention to what he's talking about in Iran in the last week? Looks like he's ready to start another one. But now, again, you're right. A lot of it's talk. A lot of him's just throwing stuff out. But the idea that he's not at least giving some sort of indication, I don't. I'm, I agree with you. I don't think we're actually close to a war. But uh, certainly, he likes the idea of uh, of keeping on our toes about such things. I would put it that way. He's been. I actually one of the things that people that people a lot of my friends that did that did not like Hillary uh, and the other way they just kind of justified voting for Trump was they actually thought he was less hawkish uh, than Hillary. I am uh, not sure that's necessarily been played out. But uh, we don't know yet. We don't know yet. More to the point, though, uh, in the other stuff, I think it's all been a lot worse. I think that uh, there are, uh, uh, again, if you're not like a white dude in this country, uh, like you feel like I, mean, I don't know, I don't. You got to feel like you're constantly under attack for. But what? But what policy? What has happened to make anyone feel that way? 
Like, what has actually uh, happened? How long? How much time? What has actually happened? See, this is the thing that you keep. This, this is why I think that you're wrong about this. Okay, is the idea of what actually happened? I agree. Trump is. Uh, such a uh, big figure and such a blustery figure that a lot of times he'll say things and then they'll just never happen. And I agree. I, and I think that does get lost a little bit. But the idea that the president of the United States saying these things doesn't have some sort of massive effect, I think is kind of crazy. <laughs> like, the, like this is still the president of the United States. And, uh, and I'm sorry, but if like if you're if you are any marginalized group and you see what he says after Charlottesville or you see the policies with the border, I don't know how you could possibly feel comfortable. And, uh, and I just don't. And, and, and so I agree that he has not actually mobilized the military to come get every brown person yet. Only some parts of them, by the way. But uh, he's not actually done that. I will give you that, that. If I were a brown person, that would be on my mind. It doesn't mean I think it's going to happen. But it would be something that would – that if he had total, absolute dictatorial power – and, and this is probably more important, actually had the wherewithal and the discipline to make these things happen, which he does not, <laughs> which I will, I, I'm grateful for, I will confess. Uh, I, uh, it'd be something you'd have to consider on the table. So, but hey, it's a sports podcast. We don't have to go yeah, down we don't go I hate that we got down this rabbit hole. The, the yeah. thing I hate, I always say this, the thing I hate most about him is he somehow makes everything about him, right? Like yeah, no matter well, what. Yeah, that's the, that's the signature policy, right? Right. It's, it's <laughs> always about him, right? Even Howard Stern's book tour has been ruined by him. You know, like, like yeah. I, I was like, oh, Howard's going to be on all these shows. Great interviewers. We're going to hear all this. Great, all anyone wants to talk about is stupid Trump being on a show in 1994. It's like, come on. So I'm sorry we got down that rabbit hole. That's okay. And to be fair, listen, I agree with you, particularly on the Stern thing, because I'm uh, I'm fascinated to read that book. And I'd be fascinated. I thought the interview that was in the Times was really good with him. And uh, but yeah, even though there was Trump stuff in there, but I would argue a good way for Stern to make sure that it didn't happen would be actually to release some of those early recordings and uh, instead of kind of hoarding them, because I, I which I understand why he is. I get why Stern does that because these are interviews, right? These are the, he he does not want every single person to come on his show feel like it, there's going to be a gotcha game done for them in 20 years right. i get that i and well, i totally I, I totally understand that but uh, i do I, I think i think it's the same thing with uh with uh, mark burnett and uh, the apprentice that's another reason he also he's a much closer tie with trump than stern does but uh i think that like this is another reason he doesn't want to have because they don't want to feel like they're like these tapes that he trusts talent trusts him to work with him and so you don't want to like release it and have other people not work with him i would argue uh when the person becomes the most powerful person on the planet uh some of those rules should be put aside a little bit Okay, let's move on. Um, we yeah. we could we could go back and forth on this all yes. day, probably. Um, and like I said, that's what I hate the most about the guy. I know, I know, I know. Is uh, he sucks us into this, and he he did it to us today. Um, let's talk about something that really interests me, and that's your show on SI, because I'm really interested about their service. And like I think about my life in 2019 compared to 2008, and one thing that's very different is I have all these like little subscriptions, right? $5 here, $10 here, $9 here. And SI is something I've loved for a long time. It's been a big part of this show. The writers, um, the editors have been great to me. And they're just another one of these like many subscriptions out there. And your show is a part of it. Uh, what do you think about the subscription model, the way we're living in this subscription era, and how your show kind of fits into... Uh, being a part of because like anything you put into these subscriptions is essentially meant to be a draw to get people to subscribe right i mean anything you put on there that's part of its function so how do you feel kind of was that a question 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that there's there's two uh, rails on this. Uh, One is personally, I can just speak to my show. I'll speak as someone that makes a show, and I'll speak as a consumer. Right. Uh, As someone that makes the show, I'll start with the consumer. As a consumer, I have to say, uh, I am kind of comfortable you're talking to someone by the way who still buys albums on itunes so do i <laughs> so, so i so, love yeah, cds so like, i'm a cd guy yeah, so, yep. so like there is something about like i my wife has a spotify subscription that i use occasionally if i need if to like put a, a playlist together for a party or so on but i listen to me like i still whatever i'm a gen x kid i had used to have the wall for full of cds uh, specifically put together so everyone would know what my musical taste was so i still listen to albums start to finish so uh, in a lot of ways the idea of um, seeing something that I like and being willing to pay for it uh, is something that I don't think I don't find even slightly strange uh, as a consumer. Now I understand how that can add up and there are decisions that have to be made. There are things that I say, you know what? I like this thing. I just don't like it enough to pay this amount. We've all made the decisions just like we do with every economic decision we make in our lives. Uh, The idea that everything should be free uh, is I, I've never quite understood it, but it doesn't mean that some things can't still be free and not have value. And I think that I think that gets lost a little bit. I think it is perfectly reasonable for any person or company or or whatever uh, a situation, content provider, or whether you're selling widgets, uh, columns, a television show, or lemonade, uh, to make the decision. You know what I uh, for it is. This is what it is worth for me to make this thing. I hope people will pay this amount so I'm able to get that. That is a, an individual decision that anyone can make across the board. And uh, to me, one of the best examples of this is the baseball writer Joe Sheehan, who has been doing a baseball newsletter for seven, six, seven years now. And it comes up two or three times a week. And I read that thing. Like, I, if he charged me 10 times what he does, I would pay it. Please don't do that, Joe. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I would pay that because that is an extreme – like as a huge baseball fan and someone that both thinks critically about baseball and likes other people who think critically about baseball but also just personally loves Joe's writing, I would – like I, I – my enjoyment of baseball, something I love very much, is complemented by Joe's writing. So I would pay – a big amount for that. Now, Joe has to decide on his side that there, there aren't enough Will leeches that would pay this right. massive amount. Yep. He, has to, he has to find his price point, and that's, and that's fine. But the idea that someone would go to Joe and say, but I want it. It's free over here. Give it to me now is something that I don't entirely understand. It is a decision. between. It's a decision. And I think – this idea that like I want it, give it to me. How could this be behind a paywall? Is I would argue something that is going to go away uh, quicker than people realize. Because frankly, there is a very small age group of people that even think that way. <laughs> like right. I'm not that yep. old. Like I'm not that old that that to remember actually paying for something. There was a stretch, I would say five, maybe six years, maybe a little longer, where people got used to getting everything for free all the time. That and those people who tend to be the most online and tend to be very loud are the ones that often complain about having to pay for things. Now, I understand it, I get it. But for crying out loud, I uh, I was I was born in the United States in 1975, and I complain about things all the time because that's all I know. But if I'd have been born in another country at a different time, or if I'd have been born in the dark ages, 
you're like, oh, I can't believe the wireless plane, wireless on this plane isn't working because I have the black plague. So I don't upset. <laughs> at a certain level, you are your surroundings. So I understand why they're complaining about that. But uh, for me, I just feel like that's like people, you have to pay for things. <laughs> like so, this is the way the world works. And uh, and uh, and I and I think that uh, uh, I think that okay. And if you uh, read my stuff and listen, mo- for the record, most of my stuff is free. I want to be very clear about that. Uh, the show is not, but most of the stuff that I make is free. My New York magazines, so New York magazine has a has a like a certain number of articles uh, uh, fee. Right, but otherwise, month, uh, yeah. it, it doesn't charge anything. Uh, certainly, my MLB stuff doesn't charge anything. Uh, my sci-fi stuff, uh, my New York Times stuff, none of that stuff charges anything. Um, and my newsletter is free. Um, tinyletter.com slash William F. Uh, but so for, but so you, I think that's a decision to be made. I don't, but not, I don't think there's anything wrong with someone saying that's more than I want to pay for that thing. So I'm not going to pay it. Uh, but the idea of like, oh, I'm not paying for that thing because I don't pay for anything. I think that's the passing thing. I do not think that's something that will last forever. Uh, as someone that makes things uh, on Sports Illustrated, speaking, speaking specifically Sports Illustrated. Hold on. Let me, I, hold on. Well, yeah, let yeah, me just respond yeah. to that one, one part. Here's what's yeah. going to change, I think, and I wonder what you think about this, uh, is it's not going to be about paying for it. It's going to be how much can we pay for? Where's the tipping point, right? How many subs- subscriptions can we have if everything's a subscription? Even at $5 a month, right? Because like right now, I'm thinking in my head, I have Apple Music. Despite being a CD guy, I do like to have the jukebox in my pocket for the car. Um, I have Hulu because it was a dollar a month for around uh black friday i have netflix i have amazon prime i have um espn plus i have sports illustrated i have sports illustrated the magazine i have you know what i mean like how many of these can we fit like i think that's going to be the next thing you know what i mean like forget everything being free it's how many of these subscriptions can i have before i tip over well, and this is, I mean, this is why people argue about the cable television model, right? Like, on one hand, uh, like, like it depends on which way this ends up falling. Like, right now, I still have cable. I have not so cut the cord because I, li- I live in a place where the best wireless provider is also the cable company. So not everybody has that case. And uh, if that if that weren't the case, I might do something different. But for me, it's 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 useful for me to have cable. I need it for the ticket. I have to ha- yeah, I, I have yeah. to watch the Saints games. I have to have it. I have to have DirecTV. Yeah. Yeah, so, and for me, yeah, and for me, I've got to have uh, like the card, like uh, the baseball Cardinals. For me, right. I've got to have the MLB TV is is an option for that. But more to the point, like I just have cable, generally speaking, and uh, and I think that's well, everyone makes their own decision. That's fine. But uh, for me, you know, one thing I would love to be able to do would just be able to go to through my cable channel and say and go go through my entire cable guide. And see how much this channel costs and this channel costs. And be like, oh, I don't want that. Make everything a la carte, right? That would be the, the ideal consumer experience yep. where everything is a la carte. Well, like, you know what? I have literally – I don't even know – uh, I don't watch – I'd I, I probably lose this out for my, to my wife because she does watch these shows. But I have never watched a House Hunters or Renovations or, or – I never watched anything about like – like uh, ghost hunters or whatever those dumb shows are. Like, I don't even know what those channels are. If every channel that I don't watch, I'd be like, Oh, well that, that thing is costing me 45 cents a month. I'll just get rid of it. And that would, that's what I'd love to have happen. Now that of course is not the way it works. And one of my good friends, uh, my, one of my best friends is a, uh, uh, has always been complaining me for years and years and years. She doesn't like sports at all. She doesn't care about sports one bit. 
yeah, I'm, she's like, yeah, but I'm still giving ESPN like $8 a month <laughs> just by subscribing to cable. I have to be able to not do that. So on one hand, uh, I get that. that The cable model for the internet would be that kind of idea, though, right? To be like, hey, here is Disney or here is whoever and or here is Amazon or here is Facebook. It'd be like, look, here are uh, 100 websites. Pay this amount and you get all of them. And I think ESPN has, has probably the closest thing we have to in sports like this. But uh, or like I wonder if that's a model that we go at some point as a consumer. I don't actually like that model, but there is something streamlined for it to be like, hey, here is our base product. Because honestly, like in 20 years, I feel like most of this stuff is going to be like cable anyway, right? We're just gonna, everything's just becoming like two or three companies that own everything. So every website and every every streaming site all becomes. One one model. You want this, 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 and this. And if you'd like this, if you'd like that spin, add a quarter a month or something, or add, add a, uh, whatever to your bill. That seems the logical way. Because we are already paying. If you are subscribing to cable, I hear people say, like, how many subscriptions are too much? I don't know. You're giving a bunch of channels that you never even look at money. So if, if, if you're a cable subscriber. And it's worth it for you these other things. So for me, I think that, like, I would like to look at the positive of this and say, right now, we still live in a la carte mode online. We still get to live in a la carte mode, but we get to pick and choose what we want individually across the board. I worry someday that won't be the case, and I wonder if that will be better for the, the people that are making things than they will be for the consumers. Now, someone as someone that makes things, maybe we'll benefit maybe in, that, in that regard. But I think right now, the consumers are getting the best of the world, even if they don't necessarily feel that way. Um, now, okay, now back on track. Yeah. So yeah, as a yeah, so, as the show guy, as a show guy, for the record, uh, I think we've talked about this. When I talked to you years about this. I have a firm rule. I don't look at numbers. I didn't look at numbers when I was a Deadspin. I don't look at numbers when I was in New York Magazine. I've never looked at like traffic. I'm with you. Or, I just ratings. Yep. I just I've never looked at them. There's no, and it's not because I I don't want to hear how bad they are. I don't want to hear how bad they are or good they are or anything. There is no number. Like as I told uh, Lockhart Steele, the guy that hired me to do Deadspin in the early days, just don't tell me any numbers. If I'm not getting enough uh, viewers, give me like give me a warning. Give me like a couple months. And if I'm still not getting them, fire me. But like, I don't want to. I don't want to go hit the button uh, so I can get a pellet. You know, I, for yep. me, no number, is, no number is good enough, and no number is bad enough. Uh, I have to just keep making my things, and hopefully, people like it. But if I if I get in the habit of, oh, when I do this, this number goes up. Uh, I, I that's not why I got into this. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, so I I just prefer not to know. When it comes to the show, I don't know how many people are watching the show. I don't know how many people are subscribing. I don't ask. I don't want to know. Um, for me, uh, I make this thing that I, I make it the way that I kind of like it. They've asked me to do it. I enjoy doing it. Um, and, and I get to do it kind of the way I want to do it. If people, uh, apparently so far to them, they've decided either that enough people have subscribed because of me, which seems unlikely, or more likely there's a certain cachet in having this sort of show, and they're trying to sell the whole platform, either to individual subscribers now, or yeah, Sports Illustrated is for sale right now. The idea that that's something that you can show to a potential buyer about, hey, look at these, this platform we have. If you want to have this and sell it to the cable networks or say, to the cable company or may, so know that you've got this Sports Illustrated channel as part of the package, their business decision is their business decision. I, uh, uh, I certainly hope I work hard on that show. I hope people like it. Uh, I certainly hope that people subscribe to SI.com, uh, SI.TV, so they can watch my show. But if they don't, 
it is not going to change how I make my show. <laughs> I, I, I'm, the, I'm an old, I have an old joke about uh, uh, Twitter. And I always feel like if Twitter would have never had Twitter would have been a better place if they had never put any numbers on it. No follower counts, no, no likes, no number of retweets. Because Twitter itself is an incredible communication device. But unfortunately, by putting numbers on it, we turn it into a dick measuring contest, like so, like everything else in American life. It has turned into into it's turned into uh oh how many people like this that means i did good i did good and i said something good because people like this that's me clapping by the way that's me giving me a self myself a, a self clap and i think it's turned in to what really should be a fascinating excellent communication device it's turned it into some sort of dumb competition i just and maybe i'll end up starving because of this but i see i secede from that uh, competition i'm here to make things and i hope that the things that i make people like but uh, for me, uh, trying to uh, uh, worry about like, oh, uh, if I do this, my ratings go up. And listen, we talked about Howard Stern earlier. Howard Stern had a, was a great part in this New York Times interview where he says the only way to tell uh, whether you're doing a good job or not is ratings. Um, that is Howard Stern. He is much more of a media professional than I ever have been and ever will be. But that is not how I conduct my business or I conduct my life. Uh, I have to be comfortable with the things that I make. And hopefully people like them, but if they don't like them or not enough people like them or people just wholesale reject me, uh, I can't do anything about that. <laughs> like, because for me, if I try to turn myself into something that I'm not, uh, I'm not being true to myself and I'm lying to, to readers or consumers or viewers. So I, uh, I do my thing and uh, uh, hopefully people like it. And uh, if they don't, um, I, they're, I, listen, I, uh, the, I'm a relatively young guy. Uh, there's opportunities that play out there for me somewhere. So far, so good. Uh, but uh, uh, for me, I just I feel like once you try to like get caught up in every new run or every new fad or every new thing that everybody's doing, you lose touch with what you went into this in the first place. I'm very lucky. I get to write for a living. That's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, so I'm just going to keep doing that. They make me stop. It's at William F. Leach, L-E-I-T-C-H on Twitter. And the tiny note or tiny letter, excuse me, is the best thing because you can find everything there. The articles for the week, stuff about the show, stuff about the three podcasts, uh, waiting since last Saturday. What's that one about? I don't know that one. That's about Georgia football. I live in Athens, Georgia now. Oh, so Georgia. I, uh, I get together and drink during the season anyway, the football season. I get together with uh, some, some, some people here and drink some bourbon. <laughs> what a classic. <laughs> Classic yeah, game they the, played against OU two years ago. Baker oh, and yeah. oh, the running back. I mean, what a game that was. That was amazing. And, and you know, people here in Athens are so desperate for a national championship. They uh, deserve they, one. They, they, they do they're, deserve they're, one. And they're, they're, they are. I do a, a yearly tortured college football fan rankings, and Georgia is pretty much at the top every single year. I, it, particularly when you look at Georgia football, they've watched uh, – not only have they not won a title since uh, before Herschel Walker, um, they – uh, have watched all of their rivals win a ton, whether it's Florida or Alabama or Tennessee or Clemson or Auburn. Like just Jeez. all of their rivals have all won titles that they never have. So it's driving them a little crazy here. So Kirby Smart is a terrific coach. Um, Kirby Smart is a longtime friend of my wife, by the way. My wife is reason I live in Athens, Georgia. Is my, wow. wife, my wife is my wife is from Georgia. They are longtime associates. Uh, I don't know him very well, other than that I coach. Uh, uh, I my son plays against his son in youth league baseball, and I coach. I coach my son's team, and his son is a very sweet kid who, perhaps not surprisingly, is very good at sports. So you know that's um, been so a theme. That's, that's, I know it. that's been a theme on this show. Dads 
just marking out about how much they love coaching their kids. Like Damon Hack was talking about it, how much he loved it. Adnan Verk was talking about how much he loved it. You're talking about doing it. It's like, wow, I can't wait till my daughter's just a little bit older. She does. She she does. She already has hockey and dance. Obviously, I know nothing about. Well, maybe not obviously, but I know nothing about dance. So I'm never going to be coaching that. Um, and as far as hockey, I mean, I've been a hockey coach my whole life. I used to travel around the country in the hockey school and do that. So I wanted her to. She'll get enough of me over the years if she sticks with it. So <laughs> we're starting. We decided she could start off with the professionals who know how to teach the little ones. I'm a little bit better older, but yeah, I'm excited to do something like maybe t-ball or I don't know whatever she wants to do. I'll jump in. Yeah, it's it's real it's really fun. And and for me, I am very much of the of the. It doesn't really matter whether you, my kid's seven. Yeah. You know, like I like I don't care whether they win. I don't care at all. I want them to get better and I want them to have fun. For me, the key thing, I love baseball. And the reason I love baseball is because I fell in love with it around this age of where they are. And so I didn't I, I played I played I played high school baseball, but I was never any like serious sexual uh, serious athlete, obviously. Uh, no <laughs> surprise to any listeners. But uh, but I, I love baseball. And for me, that it, not just that I want my son to love baseball, I want his friends to love baseball. I feel like baseball needs young kids. Kids to love baseball, and I feel like part of the problems that's happened with youth baseball is people have turned it into school. They turn it into four practices a week, and we are professionalizing you, and you're trying to get on travel teams, and you're trying to do this. And I would argue all it does is it turns baseball into school. It turns it into adults telling you where to go and where to be and where to play, and this is your obligation, and this is your commitment, and this is what is expected of you. And baseball is like that's not how people fall in love with baseball because witness people don't usually fall in love with school. So I try to make it as fun as possible for everyone involved. Uh, and uh, winning is so beside the point. I wish they didn't even keep score uh, at this age because for me, the the fun of it is getting people to fall in love with the game. All right. Uh, that bastard Trump sucked up a lot of our time, so I'm going to let you go, but I'll get you out of here on this. Um, I'm just looking across the room, and I see your book, uh, God Save the Fan, which came out in 2008, I think. And this is kind of a Howard-inspired question to get us out because uh, on the book tour, he's been talking a lot about how you know, he looks back at his books and he hates them. And, you know, uh, I just wonder, like, if you were to write God Save the Fan in 2019, how do you think it would be different or the same? Oh, it would be very different. It would be very different. Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily uh, – it doesn't mean I don't uh, uh, agree with a lot of stuff that's in that book. And I don't think it's not – I don't mean to say I didn't think it was a good book. I do think it's a good book. But, I mean, the first chapter of that book – though I would argue it's like the first chapter of that book in a lot of, is really about how – uh, Gilbert Arenas is more the future of basketball than LeBron James, which mm. obviously basketball. Oh, hang on, hang on, no, hang on. Cold takes, old takes exposed or whatever. No, hang on, uh, hang on, hang on. Because right. on one hand, obviously yes, Gilbert Arenas did not turn out to be a great basketball player. LeBron James is the best basketball player of all time. But it wasn't about that. It was about the idea that this was back. This is a lesson I think LeBron learned. Was this was back when LeBron was still kind of early enough in his career where he was trying the Jordan model. Right. He was trying to be all things to all people and no politics, no personality. I'm just LeBron. I'm just the Super Bowl. I'm I'm just saying everyone's trying to be Jordan or, or Kobe. Right. Like we're right. so serious about basketball and this is the only thing that matters in our lives. And they didn't show any of their actual personality. Now, I would argue that LeBron James learned the lesson of a maybe not Gilbert Arena specifically, but of a lot of players, which is, you know what, in a social media age, people want to know who you are. People are, want to know what you care about, which was the point of the essay. The point of the essay was that Gilbert Arenas seemed, seemed to seem to 
longer oh. what was coming oh. next in sports, which was not, which was this everything branded with a Nike swoosh world was not going to work anymore. And uh, and you're going to have to be more involved and be and show more of your personality and not be this closed off uh, corporate figure. And uh, I do think that's an essay that actually holds up pretty well, as a matter of fact. And uh, and even though the they, but not because Gilbert Arenas turned out to be this big figure, but LeBron James found his inner Gilbert Arenas, I would say. That's and fair. now and, uh, and now has uh, has uh, become, you know, uh, uh, this year aside, uh, the again, I, I will close with Trump because we started with Trump. I feel it's kind of amazing to think about the history of sports that the best at the best NBA player, maybe the best NBA player of all time at the peak of his powers called the president of the United States of bum and for once the presidents didn't the president didn't even fight back at him <laughs> didn't even say anything back it actually shut him up about the nba so you know i think that uh, i think it's kind of an amazing to live in that time it's hard, impossible to imagine the 2007 lebron james having any sort of political stance on anything and i know that bothers some people but i would argue it would be more dishonest to pretend that i i think you're seeing now the limitations of the tiger woods approach Right. Where you're trying you just try to be all things all you can't really do that uh, anymore. I think and for I mean people don't even like Derek Jeter anymore for And so I think that like that kind of all things to all people thing it has its limitations, particularly in the current culture, really for better or for worse. All right. Well, um anything else you want to plug? Uh, nope, just read the newsletter. It's free. I have a free, a big essay at the beginning of every one of them. Uh, uh, the, the newsletter is the, is uh, pretty much the only thing I, I want people to see. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Will Leach and Michael Lombardi for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode and every episode ever recorded of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. Just hit up soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports underscore casters there. And you can email me the sportscasters at gmail.com. I love getting emails from listeners like Fred Cass and my friend Bill McGrath. Email anytime. Love to hear from you guys. I do have some books available. If anyone wants a book, just hit me up. I'll send you something. Also, I wanted to mention my friend Peter Winson. Greetings from Allentown. He has a new episode out now about 1980 WWF, I believe. And he is also the co-host of another podcast I do called the Adams Division Podcast. Name that because he's a Bruins fan. I'm a Sabres fan. And, of course, the Bruins and Sabres once together in the Adams Division. And we are recording the fourth episode or fifth episode of that podcast tomorrow. And the theme of this podcast is our top ten sports teams of all time. We'll be counting down uh, each team, not like number one, the Saints, number two, the Sabres. No, specific teams, the year of that team. Uh, and why that team resonated with us. And we also will be reading lists that have been submitted by listeners and friends and uh, also people who have been on this podcast. So I'm really looking forward to that. And the cool thing about this episode of the Adams Division Podcast is it's going to run on the Place to Be Nation feed. Uh, so 
With all that said, don't forget greetings from Allentown at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter for Peter's thing. Check both of our Twitters and look for links to the Adams Division Pod, but don't forget it's going to run on the Place to Be Nation feed. Now, Place to Be Nation is one of my favorite podcasts. They've had two new episodes this week. I was on episode number 513 and 518 of that show. I think they're up to 521, and I'm going to be on. We're recording it on June 17th. I will be on uh, that week. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to them. You can find them on Twitter. It's at Place, the number two, B Nation. And uh, follow that, and I'm sure they'll have a link to the Adams Division podcast as well. So two new podcasts for me this week, this one and the Adams Division podcast. Uh, I also wanted to mention Matt Zemick, uh, our friend from Accent Tennis. You can follow him at Accent underscore Tennis or at Mzemek, Z-E-M-E-K, on Twitter. And uh, you can also follow his partner on that. It's Sakib Ali. He is on Twitter at S-A-Q-I-B-A. Check out their stuff. French Open's going on now. A great time uh, to follow a tennis podcast. Let's see. Anything else I want to mention? I think we got it all, so that means it's time for one last thing. Now look at it. I'm a guy with two brothers, and when you have two brothers, sometimes it's difficult to talk that much about any one of them because you worry about offending the other one or making the other one feel bad or making the brother you're not talking about think that they don't mean as much to you or something like that. And I've talked a lot on this podcast about how my brother Greg has really helped me with this one last thing segment because I will go to him every week and say, hey, listen to that. What do you think of that one? Should I go farther? Did I go too far? Uh, how personal should I be? And he's really helped me with it. Not by really saying much, but just knowing that he's listening to them and that I can count on him. Uh, he's been really, really helping me. So I know that he will understand why I'm doing this today. Because my brother Anthony turned 28 years old on May 25th, which is crazy for me because Anthony is the person in the world who makes me feel the oldest. Uh, I was 11 years old when he was born, and I remember I remember that day like it was yesterday. There was a, there was a Friday night, and I had a friend over who was going to sleep over. And I was one of these guys that, like, he's my friend, but and I like him, but I don't know if I really want him to sleep over, but. Somehow he like asked me and my parents were around and they're like, yeah, yeah, Corey can sleep over. And I was like, all right. You know, I, I don't know. I was into it, but not really that into it. I don't remember if it was just a day or if I really wasn't that into Corey. We're not really in contact now. I still know him. Nothing against him, by the way. I'm not, I'm, I don't mean to put him down. Uh, but he was sleeping over and my mom and my stepfather were downstairs and they had a friend over, uh, this guy, Ron Robidoux. And, uh, he was over just talking to them. And I don't remember where my brother Greg was. Probably just home. And everyone's just doing their thing. And my mom goes into labor. So everyone. So my friend Corey has to go back home. Ron Robidoux leaves. And my parents take my brother Greg and I to their grandparents' house. 191 Temple. And we had to stay the night there. And, you know, in through the night, nothing happened. And then I remember the phone ringing in the morning and I answered it and then Winnie answered it in the other room and she told me to get off the phone and I just kind of stayed on and listened to uh, 
my stepfather saying, you know, that Anthony had been born and, you know, I just remember feeling pretty excited about it for whatever reason. Uh, probably because the first time around I wasn't excited about my brother Greg to be born, but that was just because I was a six-year-old kid and I didn't want to share my mom and it was just like a weird thing like that, nothing against Greg. And in retrospect, you know, very glad he was born, obviously. But uh, so Anthony was born on May 25th, 1991 and I was 11 years old and he was always a boy to me, this little boy, you know, and as I got older and as he got older, I could kind of take him, I remember taking him to the flea market. I was, right when I got my license, I was like 16 years old and it was when Pokemon was huge and I took him to the flea market and I bought him Pokemon cards and we just palled around. We were just like, we always had this different relationship, probably because of the age difference where, you know, we didn't fight and I was always, it was just, it was a lot different than my relationship with Greg. And, And again, I think it's just because of our ages. You know, when you're 11 years older than a brother. But Anthony's always been such a good brother. I remember this one time when he was a baby. I had this brutal headache. And I was fighting it. And we didn't have any Tylenol or anything in the house, which was frustrating. And I went to, after dinner, I I just went and laid in my bed. And I was laying in my bed and I was like crying. I was in so much pain. Maybe it was a migraine headache. I don't know. It's the worst headache I've had in my life, I feel like. And I remember Anthony was a baby and he, he crawled into my bedroom. I always remember that. And he had his pajamas on and he crawled in and he took a look at me and he crawled out and he came back with our dad. And He was like, what's wrong? And I told him and he went and went to the store and got me some Tylenol. And I remember Anthony just sitting in the room with me the whole time while he was gone. And um, I just remember thinking like, you know, I don't know. That story just sticks out in my mind. And another story that sticks out in my mind from when he was a kid uh, and I think I know I've told this story before on the podcast, but it was the Santa's workshop at his school and he had $20 for it and he was going to buy his gifts for the family, you know, to put under the tree. And he bought me my mom a CD, which kind of blew, blew out of his money. And uh, he bought somehow he didn't get anything from me. And I think it was just a mistake. He just forgot to get me something. And he was really upset about it. And he decided he was going to give me this little Pavel Bure, um, like starting lineup type thing that we had that I had actually, I think, given him. He was going to wrap that up for me. And he was telling my mom how upset he was about it. What a, it was a horrible gift and I was going to hate it. And he felt so bad. And my mom kind of pulled me aside and like, you know, make sure, you know, you, you, you express gratitude and appreciation. And I was so moved just by like how upset he was and I could just, I just didn't want him to feel bad. Like to me, it was the greatest gift I ever got that day. And Anthony and I, we've always just, what I loved is I've always been able to share my passions with him, whether it be my love for Pavel Bure or my love for hockey. Anthony, we'll talk about hockey in a minute, but his first minutes and moments of hockey were coming into my locker room on my high school team with a mini stick and watching me play and, you know, I always like to think that a big reason he played is because he wanted to be like me to some degree. And I'm proud of that, especially with how far he took hockey, way farther than I did, obviously. Uh, but I was just always able to share my passions with him, whether it be hockey or Pavel Bure, eventually Pearl Jam. He's been to so many Pearl Jam concerts with me. The very first Pearl Jam concert I got to take him to was in 2005, September of 2005. And it was one of his first weeks of school at St. Francis. 
We'll talk more about St. Francis in a minute too. And I remember just getting to pick him up from school and we drove to Toronto and we watched this Pearl Jam concert with him. And I remember just looking over at him as the lights went out and the first song started and getting to see his reaction and, and watching him kind of, you know, fall in love with seeing Pearl Jam concerts, just like I fell in love in 1996 and just how important that was to me and how great these shows are now because I get to share them with my brother Anthony and my brother Greg, who's discovered a passion for it as well. You know, we went to Chicago last year and we had three 10th row tickets and one in the upper deck and I gladly took the upper deck. So I was so happy that they got to be down there close and experiencing it from there. You know, so Anthony and I, Anthony and I, you know, we've had very few arguments over the years, very few fights. And, you know, I, I've just always been kind of like a, kind of like maybe a second dad to him in some way. I guess you'd have to ask him that, but I've always felt that to some degree. And we've just always been close and he's always been such a good brother. He's always made me so proud. One of the things I'm most proud of is I've never really met anyone who doesn't like him. And it's really, I feel really confident in saying that if you don't like him, you're probably the problem. You know, he's a better person than me. People like him way more than they like me because he's a better person. And I'm so proud of him about that. And I like to think that part of my influence, part of it is because of my influence, because I was a good big brother to him. Uh, And obviously being able to watch his hockey all those years, I was at his first triple a tournament in toronto which i conveniently wrapped around a pearl jam concert and i was at his first you know state championship game i was at his second and his third i was at his first st francis game his first game with the prep team i was at his first ushl game and i was at his first final four game at yale you know i got to see him win a national championship and i was at his last game I got to be at all those games and greet him outside the locker room after and give him a hug and tell him how proud of him I was. I never cared if he scored one goal or three goals or no goals. I just appreciated being there. I've always appreciated him. Probably at some point it changed where I was always allowing him to be with me. I always brought him around. I always, like I said, took him to concerts or all my friends knew him out. I was always with him. You know, I always wanted him to be a part of it, whatever it was. And then at some point, he was the one who was letting me be a part of it, you know, inviting me to the hockey house. I remember this amazing night. It was banner night. Well, the day after his junior year at Yale, they had won the national championship his sophomore year. And his junior year, they were going to raise the national championship banner, obviously, the first weekend. And I got engaged to Tammy before we came. We seen him raise the banner. He's had two goals on banner night. And then on Saturday, or one goal on banner night, two goals on Saturday against Clarkson. And after the game, Tammy and I and Greg went to the hockey house and we got to talk to the boys. I remember talking to uh, Frank Tachara a lot that night. And I remember a lot of the guys coming up, showing respect, congratulating me on the engagement. Which made me feel good because I knew he was talking about me, you know. And for some reason that, I think because my name is different, I always worried that, and this is just me, but I always worried that 
people didn't know I was his brother too, that they just knew Greg was his brother and they probably just thought I was some weird old guy or something. Uh, so stuff like that always meant a little bit something to me for whatever reason, but it was just such a fun night and I was just so appreciative that he had me there. And then when he graduated, he let me come to a secret society building and, you know, he just, I don't know. He's always let me be around, even though I'm an older, broken down guy kind of now. And I, I try to give him a space. You know, I don't like to. I want him to be young and, and not worry about me uh, sometimes. So I don't go to things. But, man, he's just been such a great brother. I'm so lucky to have had him as a brother. And he had a 28th birthday. And I wanted to wish him a happy birthday and share some stories. And I also wanted to congratulate him because... Uh, after many years of me trying, since he's been eligible, every year I have written a nomination for him into the St. Francis Hall of Fame, and on June 6th he will be inducted, and Paula and Tammy and I will be there to watch him go into the St. Francis Hall of Fame, and I could not be prouder. Um, man, just such a great brother, and he's he's a great uncle. Paula loves him. Her eyes light up when she sees him. He was my best man at my wedding. And I love him so much. And I just wanted to take a couple minutes to uh, share some stories about Anthony uh, for the podcast today. Um, thanks for hanging in there with me and listening to all that. I love you, Anth. Congratulations on being in the Hall of Fame, the St. Francis Hall of Fame. So proud. So very proud. All right. Thanks again to... Will Leach and Michael Lombardi for being on the show. We're going to get a few more shows in this month. And, uh, you know, I'd like to do like three or four more, five more maybe before my next surgery, which I will find out more information on June 19th about when that's going to be, hopefully sometime in July, uh, because I am about done with this colostomy bag. I can tell you that much. But um, thanks for listening today. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back soon.